Hey, good morning. It's time to get started. Welcome. You're energized again like last week, so that was good. You guys, you ladies must really like snow. It give, brings you to life, you know. <laughs> Even though we complain about snow, uh, we must like it, right? I like snow. I know, Carol, you like it, right? You like the cold. I like the cold. So uh, today... We are going to make a beginning, so uh, we're going to be looking at the, the, the Christian life. A lot of the topics now uh, are going to deal with Christian life stuff, um, devotional type stuff, like how do we live, uh, you know, what, is, what does our life look like um, in terms of service, little mission, um, prayer. So we might, we might tackle some liturgical uh, themes, uh, maybe read a, a short early Christian sermon to see how they thought and how they looked at the holy life. And we'll just sort of navigate this a little bit. It's, it'll be fun. And I'll tell you some stories. So I've told you before that I am like a lightning rod for the weird and the funny. And I have some stories, and I haven't told you a lot of stories, but I've, I'll tell you some stories. And, and they usually deal with some kind of evangelism or talking to people outside the church, and in some cases very different. I've had some, I've had some uh, conversations with people that are just so different from me. And... Um, it's been kind of fun and kind of funny. So, uh, so we'll kind of see how it goes. And again, I, I, I had one, uh, Nancy gave me a suggestion for a topic, which was great. Um, if you have any topics, let me know. If there's something you'd really like to think about or talk about um, biblically, um, in terms of church history or our, our worship life, our liturgical life. Today... I am going to talk about the impossible way in Mark's gospel. And it's a great way to begin for, for early Christian devotion and mission because we don't always know what to say uh, to people. We also don't always uh, have the courage that we need. And Mark is a great example of this. So today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us look at the greater theme in Mark's gospel, and we're going to be looking at Mark himself a little bit. So you can imagine if you were to sit down and write a gospel. Let's say you were back in the early days and you were to sit down and write a gospel. How would you do it? Well, you would, you would, you would record the things that you saw Jesus do. You would also record some of the things that Jesus taught, but it would be impossible to record all of it, right? I mean, even John says, you know, if I, if I could put down all the things that Jesus said and did, I'd fill the whole earth, right, with the writings. 
But what else would you do? What would your theme be like? Well, your theme might reflect a little bit of your encounters, your own personal encounters with Jesus or uh, your colleagues, right? The other disciples or the apostles, the people in the church. And so Mark's gospel is reflective of his own experience and his own journey. And so if you would open up to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, and let's read these. These verses to me are the crux of Mark's gospel. So let's take a look at this. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, now that text right there, to me, is the center of the whole gospel and everything weaves and spins around those words particularly verse 34 and verse verses 34 and 35 so jesus is putting it to his hearers so to the disciples if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's the crux of Mark's gospel. So the question then would be, can you do it? 
can you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus without wavering, without any bump in the road, but just right down the line, never looking back. And then the question becomes, could the disciples do it? So, you know the Gospels. Could the disciples do it? No, it didn't go very well, did it? And so, we're going to look at this today. And this is a good reminder for us, too. The Christian life is one of perspective. And when we live in the Christian faith and we're journeying, if, if we think... I can do all, I can do it all, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm never gonna mess it up. Then if we do mess it up, then we feel like we have failed. And again, like I've I've said before, and I've seen so many times, I've seen Christians, if they don't have this focus in the correct way, if if you're not correctly looking at this, and you think, I have to deny myself and perfectly follow Jesus. If you're an honest person, you will say, I can't do this. And when I was a young teenager and I would have Christians come to me and talk to me about the Christian faith, I thought of it in terms, I thought about these words in terms of the law. You have to deny yourself. And you know what? I did, when I was like 20 years old, 19 years old, I did not want to deny myself. I mean, I loved my life and I loved what I did. I loved how I lived, I, everything. And I remember too, so does anybody here, now this dates me a bit, but has, does anybody ever listened to the band Rush? Okay, all right, all right. I, Okay, raise your hand if you don't know who Rush is. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so I, I had, back in the day, hundreds of CDs. And, and so music was my life. All right. So just quick background. So when I was little, my dad had all these records and eight track tapes and he put his stereo in the linen closet and then wired the speakers into my room and then he taught me how to work all of it and so I was just this little guy listening to the Beatles you know the White Album you know so like when all my friends get into high school and they're like man did you hear the White Album I'm like I've been listening to that for 15 years you know but music music was my replacement for not having a God. Um, I found joy in it. And then when I get into high school and college, I, I went to concerts. Like, that's what I did. I was always going to concerts. And so um, the band Rush, they, uh, they have a lot of albums. But what I have always thought is the best album by Rush is the album 2112. Does anybody know what that is? 2112? Okay, it's a great album. And on the cover is the pentagram. And and then, you know, so a Christian would come to me or, you know, maybe come by my house 
and see Rush's album with the pentagram on it. And, you know, he'd say, you got to get rid of that. And I would say, see, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. Because that's my favorite Rush album. You know, there's just no way that I could, you want me to give up the biggest part of my life. That's how I interpreted it, right? Because I, so here, that became a problem for me as a teenager. And so, if, so here's the thing, from a mission perspective or just a Christian life perspective, if, if we are always coming at people outside the church and our first words are, you need to deny yourself, we might understand what that means, but a person who has not tasted the gospel yet is only going to hear you say everything that you are and everything that you've been you've got to let you got to get rid of all of it now that may be right but like i i did need to kind of change my life right but see i was powerless to change my life and i only looked at christianity as law and I must do this, that, and the other thing, and then I will be on the right track. And so this particular string of verses really is important to, if, for us to understand it in the right it's It's so important for us to understand it in the right way. So how did the disciples understand it when Jesus said it? How do you think they understood it? When he, when he says it, do you think they understood it in the right way? See, I think that this whole gospel, what is happening is, you have this in the middle. Hey, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. But then, and everybody wants to jump in, jump in line and start doing it. But then all around the gospel are examples of people who could not deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow Jesus. So what it is, is it's perspective. So let's take a look. So from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus exhorts people to follow him. You see it in Mark 1.17 and then also 2.14. But then if you go to Mark 3, verse 6, so we're going to jump around a little bit here. So Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in Mark chapter 3. He heals a paralytic in chapter 2. And so then in Mark 3, verse 6, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So right from the beginning, the way of Jesus is the way of deadly peril. Then there is the beheading of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6. So we see 
Before these words in chapter 8, we see that the one who was the most vocal in pointing people to Jesus gets beheaded. Then in Mark 8, verse 31, more, more deadly peril. This time it's Jesus. He says that he's going to die. And Peter, in Mark chapter 8, wants the theology of glory. So Luther talked about this. Luther talked, he said there were two theologies in the world. There was the theology of glory and then the theology of the cross. And he said that the theology of glory is actually a false theology. And the theology of glory is just very simply, if I do the right things and believe the right way, then my problems will go away. The theology of the cross is if I believe correctly and live and follow Jesus, I may still face suffering. And so the cross is the pattern. So take a look at John chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Whoops, that's not right. Where is it? <laughs> the rich man. Uh, chapter ten, seventeen, 17 uh, starts at verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, in this text then, this is a good example of not understanding the eight, chapter 8 in the right way. So, it, you know, you look at this, in view of Mark 8. So, he starts off and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Why does Jesus ask him, why do you call me good? Does anybody know? Because we would agree that Jesus is good, right? I mean, he is good. He is the good one, right? If anybody is. Why would Jesus question the man saying good teacher? You'd think he'd be like, okay, he gets that right at least, right? But he doesn't. Because 
he, the, the rich young man, when he says good teacher, he calls him teacher, not Lord. But he uses a word for good in Greek, agathos, which is only used for God. It is a term solely reserved for God in the Bible, okay? Aristotle and these the Greek philosophers, they would use this word, agathos, for people. And so the idea was any human, to the Greek philosophers, any human being is perfectly capable of being good in this way. They don't need they don't need God, or they could be God, okay? So the rich young man is greatly misguided. If he would have said, good and holy Lord, then that maybe would be the tip-off that he understands who Jesus is. But he doesn't, the rich young man looks at religion as law things I must do. And so he looks at Jesus as a teacher that is filled with the goodness that's only reserved for God, but he's not acknowledging him as God, if that makes sense. And then the problem is apparent because his questions are, well, what must I do to be saved? In other words, just tell me what to do and I'll check the box. So to him, it's just simply a religion of, I can do it all, so just tell me what to do. But the response of Jesus actually then exposes the fact that the rich young man, for perhaps all the good that he did do, was not able to deny himself. Because his wealth and his possessions defined him. Just as music for me when I was a teenager defined me. And if someone were to come up to me and say, give up the things that mean the most to you and follow Jesus... Those things I identified so much to my person that if I were to give it up, I would die. I would cease to exist. And see, this is part of the mark of idolatry. This is what I think Mark 8 is really driving at, is the things that are so dear to us that we cannot imagine ourselves existing without them. If they are the wrong things, then that is our idol. And the struggle is, and part of the pain of, of being a Christian is, to realize that we do still struggle with these things. This gives sense to Christian devotion. And this is why the, the messages that we see 
from all things Christian and the greater society vary the way they do. This is why Luther's theology of the cross was so fundamental to his theology. Our devotion and our life and who we are and everything we say and do is defined by our theology. And if our theology is, I'm pretty good and I can just do it all, well, pretty soon we may not need God too much. And our devotion is best if every time we come to the altar, we see just how much we need Jesus. And what it does is it makes it easier to then realize we don't need the things that we thought were so important. And the rich young man, I mean, it was all perspective, right? Because if you look at chapter 10 here, and you look at the commandments that Jesus references, what does he reference? Which, which table of the law? Yeah, it's all the neighbor stuff, right? He doesn't even mention the first table of the law, does he? Because the issue is, in this rich young man's case, his wealth was his idol, his God. So the first commandment is implied in all of it. So let's get to the impossible way at the bottom of page one. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus, and then you see all these examples of people who don't do that. So Mark chapter 14, verses 29 to 31 And it's, you know, we know this, but we we know this account. Jesus said, verse 27, Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So see, Peter, Peter believes in himself. Right? He's like, I won't do it. Everybody else will, but I won't. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So here's one example, the impossible way. Echoing in the ears of the hearers as we read this text. He who would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And then we watch Peter. I will not deny you. Oh, I tell you, you will deny me three times. And then Mark 10, verse 30. Peter, it starts at verse 28, Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus there at the end is putting it in order, isn't he? And then 10, 37, and 40. Start at verse 35. So again, Jesus foretells his death a third time in verses 32 to 34. And then right after that in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That'd be a great request, wouldn't it? (laughs) All right, Jesus, you can't say no. Are you ready? (laughs) And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now think about that. That's, That's a big request, isn't it? Hey, you know this whole heaven business and you on your glorious throne that sounds really good so there's a there's a hint of understanding here james and john they're they're recognizing we see everything's going to change and you're going to have kingdom and you're going to be up there on the throne boy wouldn't it be great if we were there too you could just put us off on the side we don't need to be in the center but we could be up there and everybody can see how important we are you see And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. (laughs) What cup and what baptism is he talking about? (laughs) Yeah, he's talking about his passion, right? And of course, he says, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, who could, what do you think he's talking about? Even the Lutheran Study Bible doesn't really give a clear answer to it. So I guess it's up for grabs, but what, what what is he, who is that? Yeah. You know, like, no. It's already happened. <laughs> happening. You know. Exactly. Holly makes a really good point. Think about the transfiguration. There's Jesus transfigured, Moses and Elijah. I mean, that's holy business right there. What about to drink the cup? that Jesus drinks, and to be baptized with the baptism he's baptized with means to participate in his crucifixion, or, right? So I've always thought about it two ways, like Holly said is one way, the transfiguration. The other way is 
as you look at the crucifixion scene, there is one on his right and one on his left hanging. Now, they might deserve it, but Jesus doesn't. You know, those two guys, it is thought, were zealots, bandit robbers. And you know the story of, of zealots? You know, it's, it's an interesting story because uh, Pontius Pilate, his quarters were actually on the coast of the Mediterranean. So he always had this beautiful, picturesque, tranquil place where he, where he lodged. But whenever there was a high feast, you know, an obligatory feast in Jerusalem, you know, a couple million Jewish proselytes and worshipers would come into Jerusalem. And so Pilate would grumble because he would have to get his entourage and all their provisions, and they would have to make the trek from the Mediterranean coast into his quarters in Jerusalem. Why? Because there were all these zealots that would come in and they would seek to raise a rabble and revolt in Jerusalem, get all those millions of people to, you know, revolt. And the thing with the zealots, where they differed from Pharisees, Pharisees had the same mind as zealots. The difference was the Pharisees were willing to let God, they believed in God's providence, and so they were willing to let God work things out. But the zealots wanted to take matters into their own hands. And so they had these little knives called sakari, and they were just really snub-nosed little knives with a kind of a curved point. And what they would do is they, would, they, would, they could hide it under their, their robe, and they would look for the person that they would want to kill, for example, and they would stab the person in a crowd. They would stab the person and then melt back into the crowd, and a person would just drop dead. And so, you know, there was all this stuff going on during, like, a Passover feast, for example. And so, you know, you think about Barabbas, and then you think about these two hanging, you know, on each side of Jesus. And if they were zealots, as it's thought, then what do the casual onlookers think as they walk by and they see on the hill of Golgotha three revolutionaries? That's what they see, three revolutionaries. And so Jesus is portrayed. So, you know, this is the reversal that we see and we know about in the Gospels. And James and John, they may be well-intentioned in their request, but they're missing the whole Mark 8 account here with deny yourself, pick up your cross in Jesus and they and follow me. And they don't understand the depth of how Jesus must deny himself. To be God and yet to hang and, have, and to be portrayed as a violent revolutionary must have been a most difficult thing to go through. And so then the question becomes... In this context, could you do that? 
could you knowingly be God and then let let all these people, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, do this and have you be a, portrayed as a revolutionary. And so what is it that makes for life? That's the question running throughout this gospel. What is it that makes for life? So uh, then turn the page here. Now we get to Mark chapter 14, verses 50 to 52. So you have the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And it it says, well, you know the account. Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now, in verses 51 and 52, this is only in Mark's gospel, these two verses. And it says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, maybe you've already heard this before, but who is that? Say that again. Well, it could be. So here's, here's, here's kind of a... All right, so could be the rich young man. Who else? Some say it's Mark. Some say it's Mark. Now, what's interesting, and I've heard this, some think, and I don't know if this is true or not, but some think that the rich young man was also Mark. So, okay, now, so just kind of store that away to just think about it. But, see, this is one of those examples where Mark can talk about it because it's his cross to bear. You know, in the, in the scriptures, it seems, they don't talk about the sins of their colleagues they let the colleagues tell, tell on themselves. So Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, Paul tells it, and he tells it three times. Um, this account, we see then in Mark a timid heart, timid in the face of difficulty. And It's not just here that we see this with Mark. But it's a a good practice in the church, in, in the early church, in the New Testament, where they don't dwell on the sins of others, but their own. So it kind of goes back to that uh, when Jesus says about the log in your eye, you know, the splinter in your, 
neighbor's eye when you've got the log in your own eye. You know, it's kind of that way, like, hey, you've got your own stuff, so just stay focused on, on that when you, when you think about the Savior. Now go to Mark chapter 16. And I don't know if your Bible shows this or not, but verses 9 through 20 are, it's a later addition to the Gospel of Mark. So I think this is important in light of Mark 8 and denying yourself and following Jesus with the the implied question, can you do it? Because Look at, look at Mark chapter 16 at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then, this is the gospel of the Lord. That's how the gospel ends. That is how the, the earliest form of Mark's gospel ends with the ladies fleeing from the tomb for they're filled filled with fear and they say nothing to no one. The end. Now isn't that a strange way to end the gospel? I mean, would you end your gospel that way? That's, I mean, that's sort of, you're waiting for the the glorious climax, right? It's the resurrection. They fled and they didn't tell anyone. Goodbye. See, Mark's, Mark, this is what I think. Mark is thinking about his own level of timidity as a disciple of Christ. And as an evangelist, he wants the church to know that we struggle and we want to pick up our cross but when it really comes to push shove, push and shove it's really hard to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus the disciples forsook Jesus and fled in mark chapter 14 verse 50 Yes, Donna. Uh, this is the young man on the right side. The other gospel said there were angels, right? Yes. So, did, did, was he actually there? 
I, I think it was an angel. I think the young man was just, my understanding of it is that's just his description of the angel. So he, you know, instead of saying an angel, he's giving you a description. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Yes. I need a little more clarification, Pastor. So you're saying sure. with um, Mark, like him intentionally leaving out verses 9 to 20, he's doing that intentionally to like highlight his timid timidity. Yeah, he's showing the reality of people. So we, we, what we do know from the other Gospels is that the women then did go and tell, uh-huh. right? But what he's emphasizing is at first they didn't. So he, what he's doing is he's saying, look, these people struggled with the divine realities. And so, you know, it's a mark of his gospel that deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And then like bullet points all along the gospel, you see pictures of people that thought maybe they could do it, but couldn't do it. But what he's saying is, it's okay. And the reason, the reason why he's saying it's okay is because of how the story ends. So if you look down, so Mark in the book of Acts, go to Acts chapter 12. Did that answer your question, G? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. So Acts chapter 12, starting first at verse 12. And, you know, in some ways, I don't know how you feel, but when we think about these things, we'd like to think better. Um, especially being a Christian, we, we would like to think better that I can do it. Um, and, and that is our prayer, right? When we pray, often, you know, part of our prayer is, Lord, help me to be... Uh, a good Christian, a good follower, a good servant um, with a merciful heart and a a giving heart. Um, You know, that's what we want. Um, And and so it's a struggle to think that I can't do this the way that I would like. But Mark, the, the scriptures do end on an encouraging note and I want to get to that before we break today. So Acts 12, verse 12. Let's see here. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so Mark had two names, and it was John Mark. Okay. So he mentions Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Then if you go to verse 25 of the same chapter, it says in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so you have this this mission activity with Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Paul. 
and they bring along young Mark. Okay, so the young man who fled in fear at the arrest of Jesus is now being included with two very strong apostles on some mission work. Then we get to Acts chapter 13. And let's just take a quick look at this in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And what's interesting in verse 2, by the way, is the word for worship is liturgy. So what's going on in this text is they're in the midst of liturgy. And the Holy Spirit sets Barnabas and Saul apart. And so after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So in a way, it's like an early Christian example of an ordination service. They're in the liturgy. They fast, they pray, they lay hands. The Holy Spirit sends them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Remember that, the straight, straight road? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now that's Mark. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Mark left them. He got timid again. He got worried. He's like, magicians, mist and blindness and persecution. I don't know. My old life looked so much better back there. I think I'm going to go back home for a while. 
Now go to chapter 15 of Acts. And boy, if we had had time, there's so much good to read here, but let's just go to verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So this is later. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Huh. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now, isn't that something? Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, when you picture Paul, what kind of a guy... What kind of a demeanor do you picture Paul as? Do you think he was a timid guy that just kind of was like, I don't want to ruffle any feathers? No, he's like, I always kind of think about him as him and Luther. You know, they were both bold, right? So you can just imagine these Barnabas and Paul separate. They get into a disagreement over taking Mark so that tells you a little bit about the character of Barnabas and Paul, right? Barnabas is like, hey, let's, let's give him another chance. It's going to be okay, you know. He's young. And Paul's like, no, I'm done with that guy, <laughs> you know. And so they have this disagreement and they part ways. So one of the things I think is interesting here is just you see the human side of these apostles, which is encouraging because it's the same thing with us in the church today. You know, we all have personalities. You know, we all have inclinations. The Lord loves us through these things. And that's one of the beauties of this whole account with Mark. So it's a cross-bearing theme. And we all live with the cross marked upon us. So the gospel is this. Deny yourself, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And so what Jesus is doing all throughout Mark's gospel is saying, you are not able to deny yourselves and pick up your cross the way you should. I'm going to do it for you. It's the gospel. So see, Mark, the theme, and then all the little pieces in Mark's gospel are leading us to see the extent of Christ's mercy. When people fail, Jesus doesn't pound them into the sand and move on, but he picks them up and has them with him as he goes to the cross he dies for their sins he dies for their failures and then he gives them the 
ability later to live out a life of faith and service in his grace. And it comes at the end. So go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. So the beautiful thing about this is if you feel as though you're like one of these folks, don't be disheartened. You are precious in, in the sight of Christ. And he loves you through your struggles. And he is in the process of growing you and changing you. Because the, the thing is, is... Um, yeah, Peter denied Jesus three times, but then what did he do later? He went and did great work. The women didn't go and tell at first, but then they did. Mark kept running away, but he stuck, right? He stayed in. The Lord kept using him. This is part then of Christian growth. Who you are today is not who you will be down the road. The Lord is in the process of shaping you. As he forgives you, he strengthens you. And part of the encouragement is that in the book of Acts, right at the beginning, and we'll look at this in this course of this study, the Pentecost event and the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. The Holy Spirit was always at work, but he's given to the church. And you see through the Holy Spirit that Peter is then able to do what he does. Paul does what he does. Mark does what he does. And so here you have 2 Timothy 4, and Paul is in jail. He's in prison. And he is soon to face his own martyrdom. So let's start at verse 9. Well, boy, yeah, so much good here. All right, let's start at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. You see? So what happens here at the end of, of Paul's life is he reconciles with Mark. He recognizes uh, Mark's worth and he sees God's work in Mark's life. And it's, the Greek is especially telling because he says, um, okay, so Luke alone is with me. Bring Mark with you for he is Useful for uh, deaconing, okay? So what, what is happening here is the word for useful is eukrastos. 
Um, that is a spiritual term that is used for Jesus. And I put it in the handout on the last page. If you um, look at the very last verse, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your lives or souls. For, um, for my yoke is beneficial and my burden is light. My yoke is Christos. So what he is actually saying, Jesus is the content of Christ's love has a beneficial usefulness that it changes the character of a person of a person's life and their soul. This is what Jesus gives. He gives Christos. He gives this usefulness or beneficialness or goodness. Now, Paul says, Mark is useful to me. He's eukrestos. Which what Paul is actually saying in the Greek text is, Christ and all the things that are of Christ have been poured into Mark. And it's who he is. So you go from this timid young guy, maybe even a rich guy that turns away, to then turning away in the mission field to suddenly now being this solid Christian evangelist that is a part of the fabric of the church and Paul acknowledges it. And this is an encouragement for us too, <clears throat> that we, as I said, we are on this journey and the Lord is in the process of giving you this Christos, this goodness that changes your soul, changes your person and uh, fills you with blessing but then also provides blessing for other people. So let's close with the collect and the benediction. Almighty God, you know we live in the midst of so many dangers that in our frailty we cannot stand upright. Grant strength and protection <clears throat> to support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. <clears throat> the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed day. Thank you for coming. Thank you.